Welcome to the Antler VC cast. Antler is a global early stage VC investing in the world's most exceptional people who are building the groundbreaking tech companies of tomorrow. I'm Pooja Barwani and together with UC Salavara, we host the Antler VC cast, a show dedicated to learning from the best in the global tech and VC ecosystem. In the series called Stories of Exceptional People, we speak to founders, entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in the tech and business world. We discuss building and scaling startups, unique investment approaches, tech trends, entrepreneurship mindsets, fundraising, and so much more. Today we have with us Colin Breyer, co-author of the book Working Backwards, Insights, Stories, and Secrets from Inside Amazon. The book gives us an account of how Amazon's unique management culture has made it successful from a company that started out selling books online in 1995 to a giant which now has 1.3 million employees and a market value of more than 1.5 trillion. Colin was with Amazon for almost 13 years. He was chief of staff for Jeff Bezos. He and Bill Carr were instrumental in bringing several Amazon businesses to life including Kindle, Amazon Prime, and Amazon Web Services. Colin was also CEO of online grocery delivery service Redmart, based out of Singapore. Redmart was acquired by Lazada, an Alibaba company, in 2016. Let's start by, you know, talking about your origin story. How did you actually start your journey with Amazon? Sure. And just one thing about the beginning, some of those positions, my co-author Bill Carr did. So that that whole list uh, wasn't wasn't just me. That was uh, my co-author and me. But I started at Amazon in um, uh, March of 1998. And at that time, Amazon was uh, just selling books and just in in the U.S. in the, the corporate office was about 100 people and uh, the software team, we could all fit into one conference room. We were a little cozy, but we could all get together, um, you know, the product manager, software developers and um, and designers. And, um, and then the rest of the company, we had two fulfillment centers. We had just opened up uh, a fulfillment center on the East Coast and we had one in, in Seattle, Washington. And we just finished the First year as a public company, and it was $147 million in revenue. So that's about the, the size of Amazon uh, when, when I started. And uh, over those uh, 12 years, I got to see, uh, 12, 13 years, I got to see Amazon grow from just that, that point to pretty much selling everything in, in multiple geographies, different product lines, and also completely different businesses. So it was really uh, it was interesting to see that whole transformation happen. We made a m- lot of mistakes along the way, which I'm sure we'll talk about some of them, but uh, but it, we also grew and stayed focused on the customer. So speaking of the customer, the whole working backwards concept, we've heard this term uh, and Amazon is you know known to be uh, customer obsessed, but what does it actually mean? You're working backwards. It's a it's the title of our book, but it's also a very specific name of a process at, at Amazon. And it's the process that Amazon uses to take ideas and vet them and decide whether they're worth bringing to market or not. And these ideas, it can be, uh, you know, something as small as a set of features on the, the, the phone app or moving into a new geography or a com- starting a completely new line of business. So every, every 
um, idea goes through this process. And that it's hard, if you had to remember one thing about the process, it would be starting from the customer experience and then working backwards from that. And that's different from how some a lot of organizations make decisions. A lot of organiz organizations use what's called a skills forward approach. They look at things like, what are our core competencies? What are we doing now? How can we move into an adjacent market? Um, you know, a SWOT analysis is, is, is a typical tool that people use, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And uh, often in those analyses, what's the one word is that's not used is customer. So Amazon flipped that on its head and said, well, first of all, let's start from the customer experience and work backwards. And so the first thing that people do when they have an idea at Amazon or, or a team is they write a press release. And it's a one-page press release and it has a couple components. The first component is you really have to crisply define the customer problem you're trying to solve. And then the, the second part of that press release is you explain to the customer, um, you know, here's here's the product we have and, and then here's here's why it's beneficial for you as a customer to use. You know, it's a product or, or feature. And you read that after you write your first version, you read that press release. If you don't want to go out and buy that product or go use that service right away, you rewrite the press release. So this is an iterative process and you do it over and over again until you have something that you feel is a very well-defined problem and you and you know what the solution is going to be. You may not know how to get there yet, but you know where you want to yeah. end up. And then the other um, part of the tool is a uh, frequently asked questions, an FAQ document. FAQ. Mm -hmm. And uh, and those, uh, the FAQ, you can break it out into two main parts. One is um, an external FAQ. And those are things that questions and answers that you ask and answer that typically to the press or to customers. So how much is this product going to cost? Why should I change my behavior to use this product? Um, why should I use this versus what's already out there on, on the market? And you know what, what's in it for me as a customer? The internal FAQs are things, hard problems that you as a company or an organization need to solve in order to take this idea and bring it to market. There could be technical issues, legal issues, um, you know, unsolved problems that you have to go figure out and solve before you can bring it to market. And this is another iterative process where you have to go through it over and over again until you've identified all of the the hard issues and questions, and you have to at least know how you're going to approach your to, to solve those. You don't have to solve every problem at this stage, but you mm -hmm. need to know what you're getting into first. And all this happens, by the way, before the project is greenlit. So it, it, you slow down a little bit in the beginning, but the the intent is it, it gets your direction right of the organization. So you know what you're going to build and you know what you're getting into. And then you can go on and start writing software, or building hardware, uh, or whatever the, the type of service is. It's quite interesting, um, you know, if, if you think about the early stage startups, when they're, you know, starting out, they're pretty much forced to use something similar, not not the memo format and the FAQs, but they need to think about the service they're offering because they have nothing, right? And then they start going towards that direction, whereas corporates quite often when they reach size, um, I worked at Nokia in the past. And, you know, I, I feel like corporates get crippled by complexity often. And at the same time, they're a bit like prisoners of short term uh, capitalism, almost that, you know, you need to be able to deliver something. R&D is the one field where maybe, you know, you're, you know, it, there's an exception. But like, how do you think Amazon was able to um, 
manage the business this way, despite huge size and complexity. You know, by the time you left, it would have been uh, obviously a massive, massive company. Um, I would imagine it's something related to do with like long-term thinking and a fully prevalent culture around this, but like would be fascinating to hear how, how you see that. Sure, sure. Uh, and so everyone, you know, a lot of people from the outside looking in talk about the products that Amazon has researched, the services, you know, AWS, Kindle, Echo and Alexa and, you know, Amazon Prime. But one of the, I, I think, most lasting uh, inventions and, and, you know, that will, people will look back and say, you know, what is Amazon special for? Will be some of the internal processes that that Amazon created. So, Jeff, when I was working with Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor, it was in the 2003 to 2005 time period, and uh, we had faced the same exact problems as any growing organization does. Um, how do you get a set of common core principles? How do you hire the right people? How do you organize so as you grow, you you can continue to be nimble and stay true to your roots and and, and move fast. Um, you know, how do you communicate between teams and decide on what products to build and how do you measure things? And Amazon and Jeff and the management team, the S team is what it, or Jeff's direct reports, in particular, spent a whole lot of time during that period trying to invent how the company is going to be built. And, you know, Jeff coined the term invention machine. And it's really the, the set of Amazon's 14 leadership principles and then five core processes that have a fairly different, you know, the, the processes solve problems that each and every growing company faces, but they're, they're different solutions. And Amazon did that by one, um, sticking true to the core principles of customer obsession versus competitor, uh, you know, uh, obsession, uh, long-term thinking, uh, a willingness to invent and fail, and then a pride in operational excellence. So if you go from that starting point and you develop some of these processes, like how the you know separable teams hiring, you you, lead, you come to a different path. And so I think Amazon has been able to grow and stay true to its root, largely because of what this invention machine is in the processes that Amazon has created. And some of them are non-traditional, but they've stuck with them and they've withstood the test of time. They work in small groups. And they all work, also work in very large groups, and they work across B2B businesses for AWS, digital streaming of bits for um, you know, Prime Video, and the, the physical heavy lifting logistics uh, business. So they've withstood the test of time across a number of different industries. No, it makes, it, it makes sense that when you say that, that how they can you know, straddle different industries and implement it. Because one of the things that stuck out to me in the book as well, and also, you know, Externally, as you see, you have companies that have been building something in the same vertical for years and still can't get it right and move. And then you have Amazon who comes in, builds multiple products and this invention machine concept. I guess there are two questions I have, like, you know, can this be, is this something that you can only apply uh, if you are, if you reach a certain stage, you know, or, or is this an ethos that can be applied on a day one startup lean method, methodology type, you know, uh, uh, business where you're really building how you think. And, and I know there's, there's this word that 
in, in the book called, you talk about frugality in relation to the invention machine. So I think if you could just go a bit more into that, because obviously capital is a big thing at this early stage when they're trying to build. Sure. It definitely works for small organizations. I, I think that sometimes people look at what Amazon has created and say, well, Amazon can do that because they have unlimited capital resources, people, and to, to throw out a problem. Now, there are some large problems to companies like Amazon, you know, or, or you know, a Google or Facebook or Microsoft can tackle just because of their size. But the approach that Amazon uses, and especially if it's a brand new idea, they usually start with small teams from within Amazon. Something like the Fire Phone, which actually was not a success, was a very large project. Um, you know, so if you want to build your own phone and the app store and all the apps that go along with it, that's probably something that's not, you know, a small company can't do. But some of these other new businesses, you know, AWS and Kindle are both great examples. They started with, um, well, AWS started with Andy Jassy and a very small team of software engineers writing documents to try to figure out um, primarily storage and compute, along with a couple of other ideas that actually did not make it to the <clears throat> to market because this working backwards process you know, it you have more ideas than you can do, and it 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 really the best ideas float to the top, and um, and Amazon invested as the those things gained traction. Same thing with with Kindle. We did uh, not know how we were going to go into into digital. You know, it was in two thousand four when <clears throat> when there are two people who went over to start off. It was Steve Kessel who ran the devices and services business. Um, now, but he was running the books, the, the digital media business, which was 77% of Amazon's business at that time. And that was, I'm sorry, the physical media business. That was physical books, physical CDs, and uh, physical DVDs. And actually, the VHS tapes were still a shockingly large per proportion of that. And what Jeff did, as Bezos did, is he took Steve from running the largest business at Amazon and put it and said, Steve, we have to go figure out digital. It's going to be cannibalizing our, someone's going to cannibalize our physical delivery business. It mm -hmm. may as well be us. Mm -hmm. And it was Steve and our, my co-author, Bill Carr, were the first two people, and they built that up from scratch. And, um, you know, there, and H.P. Siegel was another person, but it was a handful of people. So these processes do work. And in terms of frugality, that that's another thing. I, I I do chuckle a bit. It's it was hard to get resources on your project at Amazon. You had to justify to get an additional software engineer or to get capital. You know, at Amazon, you don't really get bonus points for how big your org is. You, if anything, you get more scrutiny. You know, why do you need an organization that big? And so at Amazon, you know, when we were Growing, we invested in in a lot of things, but it was all well within our our means. So you know, if and and if something failed, and we knew some, you know, if we were working on ten things, we knew a certain percentage of them were going to fail. But we weren't betting the whole company on those things. If you have, you want your experiments to have time to to pay off, and if you're betting your whole company and that one fails, you've probably started to invent a couple of years too late. Okay, so. It, it really sounds like there's something special about the culture overall, you know, and, and uh, actually I when when looking into your work here. I, I, for the first time, came across the concept of being an Amazonian, um, which is an interesting way to put it. I, I, I actually worked at McKinsey before and, and looking back, it feels like a cult, you know, 
and I, I you know I got the same vibes about being Amazonian, right? So would you would you uh, be able to talk a bit about uh, Amazonians and what it means and how to look for Amazonians and and you know what was that whole culture building um, and organizational approach? What was that about? Yeah, so I mean, I personally would not say it's a cult, but you know, Amazon has 1.3 million employees. I'm sure you'll get different opinions by by asking uh, different employees there. But being Amazonian, it's really a state of mind, and it's it's based on the 14 leadership principles. And it's if you know if, if internally, if you say, well, you're you're acting Amazonian, it's you're embodying one or more of those leadership principles at a particular point in time. So I'll give you some examples of not being Amazonian. Uh, for instance, if you're the, you know, the month end or quarter end is coming up pretty soon, you, you're not hitting your revenue number. So you need to pull a group of people together and do either a fire sale or a promotion, just, you know, whatever you need to do to juice revenue for the, the, the quarter. So stop what you're doing and we have to hit our numbers because someone wants us to hit it, you know, whether it's the board or investors or the CEO, um, you're just, you know, you're pulled from one project to go do a fire drill project. That is not Amazonian, you know, it's not long-term thinking. Um, it also takes you off path from uh, these you know, if what you're working on, these durable needs over time. And typically what you're doing is you're just pulling demand from the future period into the current period. You're not creating anything new. And so once that new quarter or new month starts, you're back in that same hole that you were, you were in before. So, you know, that short-term thinking is, is, not, is not Amazonian. Same thing with the competitor focus. If you look at, hey, um, you know, a, a great example would be with, with uh, digital. Um, you know, there's a story where um, Apple which was announcing iTunes for Windows, which was a huge, huge deal at that time. A Apple hadn't built any Windows applications. So Apple was saying they were all in on digital music. And, you know, some companies would say, oh, we need a digital music response tomorrow. We can we need to build a uh, copycat product and get something out to market. And usually what you do is you're to market a little too late. And with and Apple or whoever is a version or two ahead of you already. And so you just wasted that time versus saying, you know, how how can we participate now is the time to move into digital. And Amazon took a different approach saying, well, we can't really think of anything right now to add value to the digital music space. But for digital reading, we think we can do a lot. And so we started. That's one of the reasons why we started mm -hmm. with Kindle and digital reading and didn't copy what. A lot of other companies were racing forward to, which was, you know, Apple's going to take over digital music. So let's let's yeah. try to prevent them from happening. So that so that I'll give, those are two examples of not being Amazonian and just the, you know, the patient long term thinking about, you know, starting from that customer experience and working backwards. And, you know, knowing that some of these inventions are experiments are going to fail, too. And, uh, you know, so some of those things are being uh uh, being Amazonian, but it's really just a, a state of mind and following those 14 leadership principles. Wow. There's so much there that I want to follow up on because you also, you know, talked about the bar raising process, which is uh, the hiring process, which is so unique, but how do you then test um, someone for being Amazonian or having that skill set when you're hiring versus what kind of questions do you ask? Um, yeah. Versus kind of them picking up, picking it up as they are in the organization and go through the experiences. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. And the, the bar raiser process, it's it's all about <clears throat> removing bias from the hiring uh, process and using a data-driven approach to gather as much data as you can about the candidate and, uh, and then to make a hiring decision. And the data that you're gathering, what you're doing is you're asking behavioral type questions, which is how you're asking about their past behavior, you know, what they've done in the past. That's usually the, the most accurate predictor of future behavior. You know, tell me about a time when you went above and beyond and solved a customer problem. Tell me about a time when you resisted um, a competitor impulse that you know everyone said you should be doing and, and you focused on build something for the long term. And how did you go about convincing the group that that was the right thing to do? So you can find out um, using behavioral questions like that. But first you have to have a very strong set of and well-defined set of leadership principles. Now, small organizations or any organization don't, don't have to use Amazon's 14 leadership principles. As a matter of fact, we'd recommend those organizations come up with their own because that's really what uniquely defines you. But then the bar raiser process is all about mapping, collecting data to map a candidate's past behavior against those leadership principles. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, there's another, uh, there, I would say a couple other remarkable, um, you know, noteworthy aspects about the, the bar raiser process. There is a very specific role called the bar raiser, and they're not in the hiring chain. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, essentially they don't have a vested interest and, and they don't have bias about we need to hire this person or we're not going to be able to, to hit our goals, our product goals that we, we, you know, we need three product managers or four software engineers by the end of the quarter. We're not going to be able to build fast enough. Their job is just to make sure that the hiring bar is met. And, and, and then they also train the interviewers, um, you know, so they're there to guide the hiring manager and the rest of the team to make the right hiring uh, decision. And, um, you know, a couple other things that happen in that process is each interviewer has a very specific task going into an interview. You know, at Amazon, there are 14 leadership principles. And, you know, if you say five to seven interviewers, you know, so each person has about two or three leadership principles. They know what questions they need to ask. So um, they don't have complete information about the candidate. Their job is to go get some information about how they map to these leadership principles. I'm setting aside the functional tests, which kind of differ by job description. But then they come back and they they have to write their feedback. Um, they can't talk to anyone on the interview loop to say, hey, did you hear about, the, you know, I'm super excited about this candidate. Oh, so that's biased. just how you introduce bias <laughs> in, in there. And you submit your vote. You can't, and, and then there's a debrief meeting so some some companies don't have that debrief meeting. They have everyone submits into a, a recruiting system, and then the HR person and the hiring manager read through that and get together. At Amazon, the whole interviewing panel gets together for about thirty minutes per candidate, and they read. So the first part of it, you know, is reading all of the feedback, and then the bar raiser says, "Okay, after everyone's read it, does anyone want to change their vote?" And, you know, because going into it, the interviewers don't have 100% information yeah. until yeah. they read that whole set of feedback. And yeah. then the bar raiser guides the, the interviewing panel and the hiring manager to help make the right decision. So, it's again, this is another area where it's a harder interviewing process. You know, if you, if you agree to interview folks, you've got to be very deliberate going in. You have to control the interview to get the information you need. You have to write um, you know, you are objectively write your feedback and defend it in front of your peers. You can't say, oh, I had the lunch interview. So, I, you know, I, I, 
I, I didn't really get all my questions in, mm -hmm. or this candidate was a little chatty and, you know, it's your job to go get, to go get that information. Yeah. If you don't, you've let the rest of the, 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 the team down. I think what's most interesting, go ahead. No, but I just, I just want to say what I think is most interesting is that the bar raisers are not part of HR. And I think that's so important because at the end of the day, they're the hiring managers and they're working with these people. So I think that that collaborative philosophy is obviously something that I think everyone can adapt. Yeah. Yeah. And what I wanted to say is that I think it's, uh, it's fascinating and fantastic to have a system around that and have different people have, um, clearly a different focus area of what they're looking for around a structured process geared towards data and an unbiased view. I, I think like my hypothesis about how people interview in general is that they're simply looking for a, do I like this person or not? And then there's like these surface layers of uh, needing to communicate your intuitive decision of whether or not you like this person or not around some, you know, bullshit business jargon language around all oh, reason X, Y, and Z. But ultimately, it's about whether or not they like that person. But if you can dissect it the way you described, um, I've been in situations as well where you use the behavioral methodology around a certain theme and you try to go to those situations. That's a very, very powerful way. And uh, I, I think the unbiased nature of, uh, you know, um, interviewing is is absolutely critical. Uh, what I let, let me pick up on one theme, um, which kind of bridges to the next uh, next one I wanted to go to, which is this starting a meeting by reading. Um, which seems fascinating because you also have the whole, um, I don't know if it's a strict no PowerPoint uh, world, but like having these memos where you start the meeting uh, when you have a decision, say, and you, you start by reading. Now, this was uh, starting the meeting by reading, uh, you know, the, the briefings from different people. So, like, what type of meeting culture is there at Amazon? Uh, because many of us spend most of our days in meetings. And then, you know, we'd love to hear a bit more about this whole decision-making culture around the memos, etc. because it's so atypical to companies. Like, I, I'm not aware of any other company that uses that. Yeah, so Amazon does use some slides in PowerPoint, but they're mostly for things like all hands meetings or you're in a group of 100, yeah, you know, 200 people where it's one talking to a broad audience. But for decision making meetings, Amazon does not use slides. And, um, it, you know, it started out as let's don't use PowerPoint, don't use slides, use memos or narr narrative as you a six page memo for in an hour meeting so if it's a half hour meeting three page narrative but um but it started out that way but once people started doing it it was one of those processes where you don't really have to audit because once you start using narratives as a decision making tool it's hard to go back to powerpoint and you know, it started in in 2004 as you know, it was also the time I was working with Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor. There was a management meeting four hours every Tuesday from 10 to 2. And two or three teams would come in and present and they would use PowerPoint or, you know, to present. And we realized that the business was getting more complex. The presentations were they weren't going anywhere. We weren't making the right decisions. And we realized they were well-intentioned 
smart teams. So it wasn't the team, it wasn't the topics, and it wasn't the presentation. It was the tool we were using. We were using a presentation tool to, and not a decision-making tool. So what we did is we just one day said, okay, from now on, uh, everyone needs who's going to present to Jeff's management team has to come in with a written memo. And a couple of notable things. There was an experiment. If it didn't work, we would have tried it for a few weeks or you know, a small number of months, and we could have gone back to, to slides. But we knew um, we, we wanted to get better. So we tried it, and it, Jeff later called it one of the best decisions Amazon has, has made. And a, a couple reasons are, one is that it really forces the writer or the writing team. So often these narratives are written by more than one author. It's, it's a team. To, to, it's harder to write a narrative, but it forces them to have clarity of thought before they go in front of a, a group and present their material. By presenting, I mean hand, hand a document or share a document with them. And uh, so, so it takes longer, but... but but the clarity of thought is much, much higher. Another thing it does is it, it removes bias. You know, the, just like we talked about the hiring process removes mm -hmm. bias. The, the, the narrative process removes presentation bias. You can have a charismatic presenter who can convince a group of people to adopt a so-so or sometimes even a bad idea. Um, you know, they're not malicious. It's just they could think it's a good idea, but there's so many holes in it. The company shouldn't be doing it. But it, they're, they're the presenter was so charismatic that everyone in the room thinks, yeah, this is great. <laughs> and usually with um, presentations, uh, when people say, how did that meeting go? If it is a PowerPoint presentation, they say, oh, the presenter was really it was great. The presentation was great. But Customers don't really care how the presentation went. They care about did the company make the right idea to build something useful for for, for you know for for them for the customer. Another type of bias is you could have um, someone who has a great idea but is just not a good presenter. They could be a boring presenter. Mm -hmm. They're not good at clip art. They you know it's just like you think when is this meeting going to end? But it it actually has it's a great idea that you just the, you decide not to do it. So. The narratives remove that bias because it elevates the idea over the, the presentation. You can put a whole lot more information in a six-page narrative, you know, in an hour meeting than you can for a, a slide. You know, the pixel density is about seven to nine times the, the amount people read faster than um, people talk. Mm -hmm. And then you can cover multi-causal arguments much better in a, a six-page narrative than you can in a hierarchical slide. So all in, it's about you get 10 times or more the amount of information. So, you know, if you think about what I like to make my decision with 1x or 10x the information, because an hour meeting is an hour meeting, uh, you know, it, it, whether it's slides or, or narratives. And so how Amazon, uh, you know, a 60-minute meeting at Amazon would work out is someone would either share, you know, if it's virtual, you share, share the document, or even if everyone's in the same room, you know, um, pre-pandemic time, or, or they pass out the, you know, a, a six-page document, and the first twenty minutes is just silent, and people are reading the document, taking notes, making comments, and uh, so it's it's a bizarre experience for someone to walk into an Amazon meeting for the first time, especially if they're not warned, because you'll be chit chat. Okay, okay, let's begin the meeting, and then it's twenty minutes of silence. But if you were to look at it through a different spectrum, you know, a light spectrum, you would just see a massive amount of information essentially being transferred from the presenting team who wrote the memo to the people in the audience who read the memo and, and have asked questions. Then you have a 40-minute really deep discussion 
with that where the people are up to speed and you make a better decision. So this these narratives allow you to enter a room with an idea and leave with a much better idea or enter a room trying to make a decision and leave with typically a higher quality decision than slides. So that that's um, what the narrative process is all about and and how Amazon meetings are kind of bizarre if you compare it to, to other um, you know slide presentation meetings that happen at a lot of other companies. No, that's uh, that that sounds really fascinating. Reminds me of one thing where you know again I mentioned McKinsey before, like and and um, the best senior people there would force the team to write like a very detailed narrative of everything. But then because McKinsey is McKinsey, you had to do like a backup slide for every single sentence. So it was still end of the day a bit different, but um, uh, good. But I, I wanted to, you know, understand one thing, which is like, where is all of this coming from? Like I know hundreds of founders and, and you know, most of them are not leadership gurus, right? Uh, you know, and, and they're not experts at both building a business and also transforming the way a huge company is run. And of course, in the modern day and age, as I guess, every, you know, always humans have loved hero stories and the notion of the mythical character. So, so is this all coming from Jeff Bezos's like specialty as a human being or, or is there something else at play as well? You know, would, would love to hear your take on that. Yeah. So in every company and one aspect or another other stands on the shoulders of those who've come before them. So Amazon um, invented some things, but also learned from other companies and, and sometimes copied processes. Uh, a good example is, you know, Amazon uses the five whys uh, you develop you know, from Toyota quality management. When something goes wrong, you ask why it went wrong. You keep asking why till you get to the root cause. The bar raiser process, I would say um, some of the ideas actually came from a Microsoft hiring process that called an as appropriate interviewer, an as app uh, person uh, would, would sit in on what would be part of the interview loop. And that person was not in the hiring chain that didn't have some of the other things. But um, so some of it came from other companies. Jeff was also a great study of, you know, what are other companies doing well? How can we learn from them? And a lot of times it's not how do we copy directly, it's what are they doing and how can Amazon take it? How can you make that Amazonian, you know, what, what, what they're doing? So this invention machine I talked about at the beginning, the leadership principles and those five processes, it would not have been created without Jeff. Uh, and uh, you know, Amazon would not be what it is today without Jeff. But now Amazon and this invention machine both can operate without Jeff, I mean, we'll see in a couple of months as Andy Jassy takes, uh, you know, over as the uh, over as CEO. But these processes, they're they're relatively straightforward. Um, so you know, they some take a little bit more work than than what you're used to in terms of hiring or you know, getting ready to make a decision. You can throw a slap a PowerPoint together, uh, slides together, usually faster than writing a six page narrative. You can't do that the night before because um, you usually have to go through a couple of revisions to have that clarity of thought. Looking at input metrics versus output metrics, you know, not being focused on the shiny quarterly revenue number, but really figuring out what are the controllable input metrics? One thing can I, what things can I control that if I do them right over the long haul will um, yield the desired results in my business. So those are things that any organization can follow. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, 
Um, but you know, Jeff, what, he was integral to creating these things. But that's one of the reasons we wrote this book was to explain the management science that Amazon has developed, so other organizations, small and large, could adopt some of them. Were you able to adopt some of these uh, to working at Redmart? Let's say. Yeah. So when I, start, I started at Redmart in 2015, and it was roughly about the same size, ironically, as Amazon when I started in in, in 98. And um, so we did adopt some of those uh, some of those things. We, uh, you know, especially in metrics, looking at the input metrics, we focused a lot on on time delivery. Um, you know, with with grocery delivery, either instead of one or two items per order, they're typically 20 ish items per order. You know, so did were you able to pick everything and you know, did they get all the 20, 000, 20 items per order? Did any eggs break? Was ice cream frozen when it got there? You know, things like that that customers really care about. How many minutes was it late? If you do those things right and you have, you know, the, the quality of the, the food you deliver, um, the business uh, will grow. We worked on some of the separable teams, you know, before it was set up in terms of department, you know, product technology and the commercial team. And, um, you know, the org structure isn't the, the most important thing. It's how do you get the, the teams working together if it's cross-functional to really define the customer problem that you're trying to solve and then organize around that versus, um, you know, organize, looking at your your internal org chart shouldn't really reflect your, your, your project. So we did those, uh, what Amazon calls single threaded separable teams. And we implemented a hiring process that was loosely based on the bar razor process. What is your biggest regret? My biggest regret? Well, I would say one of the biggest mistakes I made is um, I, I was at Amazon and, and I, I forgot my customer. And, uh, you know, and it, it was, um, there were other category managers and we were responsible for funneling traffic to different categories. And, you know, so how you get all this uh, traffic coming into Amazon and the category managers would had to hit their number. Hey, Colin, can you change the newsletter or can you just devote, you know, change some ads, the ad servers to go to the electronics category? And they would high five me, you know, when, when we did that. And, and I realized that all I'm doing is I'm just turning the the fire hose and, and not really working on making more traffic coming in. And it it, it wasn't those things. That, it, it took me a while to realize that that I just forgot that that what I my job wasn't to make the category managers happy. Say my my customers, the affiliates happy, and 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 I needed to focus on how can I double and triple that business versus make the category managers happy. So don't forget your customer. That was a big work. So it was a mistake I learned from it. I will not make that mistake again. Um, and what is your motto in life with what you live by? I like, um, well, you know, ABC, just always be curious. Uh, I love learning new stuff. You know, I'm an engineer by training and I I'll try writing a book. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. It was hard, but I learned a lot and you know, made a lot of mistakes. So just be curious. It's it's that's what makes life fun. Uh, and just as a side, I, I think it's fascinating that you co-authored a book. Like that that must have been a, a task in itself, writing with someone. Um, and the last one is, um, you see, it's it's your turn. Yeah, sure. So what uh, what's an app you could not live without? 
Well, right now, I would have to say it's kind of a boring uh, password manager, <laughs> but that's what I couldn't live without because on my phone, because I don't remember any of my passwords. But the, an app that I, I, I use almost every day is a Sonos app. Just um, I'm a big music fan and wherever I am, I want to listen to music and, you know, some of the interfaces through um, the voice interfaces or some of the other uh, uh Apps just don't really allow me to discover music that well. So Sonos. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Colin. It was uh, really a lot to take away there that our listeners can uh, benefit from building. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really hard to distill this down into 40 minutes. So, uh, (laughs) but thank you. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with me, Pooja Barwani and UC Salovara. Antler is a global VC firm headquartered in Singapore with 14 locations globally, and we are growing. To learn more about Antler, our portfolio companies, and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.